Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and reporter here at Ed Surge. We're a nonprofit newsroom covering innovation in education. Jared Tenbrink is a doctoral student in education at the University of Michigan. Another affiliation for me is Nottawasepi Huron Band of Potawatomi. Uh, so NHBP. Um, I am an enrolled tribal member. He lives a two and a half hour drive from his tribe's reservation, which makes it hard for him to help his two young kids learn about their Native American heritage. As a former science teacher and instructional coach, he was looking for a way to deliver the teachings of tribal elders, both to his kids and to a broader audience using distance education. But he didn't think traditional streaming video was the way to go. It's hard to learn when you're eight years old through Zoom. I watched my sons do that during COVID, and it was hard. And then on top of it, like, how do you really connect with the land when you're looking at this, like, flat screen and a little box, right? So how do you put somebody in that space? To help preserve and share the teachings of his Native culture, he decided to try the latest in high-tech tools, virtual reality. But when he went to the tribal elders with the idea, not everyone was initially sold. Some were concerned that strapping on a VR headset would take students farther from the natural world. Other tribal leaders thought it was worth a try, though. So for the past year or so, Tenbrink has been trying the approach, taking a 360-degree camera out in the field to capture key cultural practices. His short VR videos are just part of a curriculum that he's developing, which also incorporates hands-on exercises. Could virtual reality be the key to teaching indigenous ways of knowing to a broad population of students? I connected with Jared Tenbrink for this week's Ed Surge podcast to dive into that question. I started by asking him how he got the project started once he settled on the idea of creating these VR educational materials. The next step was to start talking with tribal members and to start connecting with, with people who had knowledge. Because as somebody who wasn't raised heavily immersed in my tribal culture, I don't really come at it at a place where I could do the teachings. Additionally, I'm not an elder. Uh, and so in my mindset, that's, that's not my place. So I didn't want to be the one teaching on these videos. I wanted it to be somebody else. So I, I connected with personal friends. I spoke with them. I connected with tribal uh, government connections that I and different people and different organizations that I knew. And I asked them about this. And I sat down and said, what do you think of this idea? And what, what should we teach about? What should the topics be about for these, for these, these ideas? And as a Potawatomi, um, which is, we're part of the Council of Three Fires, the Anishinaabe, and for us, there's, there's a couple of things that are really significant. And so we centered on, we centered, started with three, but we ended up reducing it down to two. Um, and those two topics that we chose were maple syrup, so maple sugar bush, uh, and um, manomen, or manumen, depending on the language, uh, uh, which is wild rice. So native rice. And, and I want to say it's, it's not the stuff that you typically find in the store. If it's a little black hard little thing. That's not the real stuff. And to get the real stuff, 
you got to find somebody and you got to pay. It's like $30 a pound um, because it's, it's hand harvested still. And it's, it's actually quite interesting. As part of this work, I read a book called Manumen, which is by um, another person I connected with through, through this. Uh, her name is Barbara Barton. And she wrote a whole book on the, on the grain and talked about they had attempted to like harvest it and things and there was all these problems. But it's extremely important. Both of those were extre- are extremely important to our tribe's culture and our history for two reasons. One is that we have in our faith system uh, the seven fires prophecy. And each of these prophecies kind of talks about different eras and times and things that we did or needed to do or need to do. And one of those is that we were told, our ancestors were told, to seek the place where food grows on the water. And they came down the St. Lawrence and they found the place where food grows on the water, which is the Great Lakes Basin, where wild rice, Manoman, Manuman, it grew everywhere. It was all over the place. And our story really closely mirrors the story of Manuman. As we were pushed out of our lands, Manuman was killed off. As settlers came in, they filled in the wetlands where Manuman grew to grow potatoes, or they just killed it because they polluted the water systems. And so Manuman is, is now a threatened species in, in southern Michigan. And uh, river, there's two main strands this is my understanding. There's two main strands. There's river rice and there's lake rice. And river rice is a threatened species. Lake rice is more plentiful, but it's mostly been pushed up north and west, which is what happened to a lot of Anishinaabe. We were pushed north into Canada and west into Minnesota, all the way up to like Saskatchewan. But when people talk about like holy lands, this is our holy land, the Great Lakes. And so how how can I help people connect to the Great Lakes? And how can I help people learn about this amazing plant? There was one other topic he settled on exploring after those conversations with tribal elders and others. And that was the harvesting of maple syrup. Syrup is extremely important as well because syrup is how we survive the winter. Realistically, you get to February, this time of year, and your food supplies are running low. And that's right when the gift of syrup comes about. And we didn't just use it for, you know, we didn't use syrup. I should say that. We used sugar. We boiled it all the way down to make sugar. And it's great. Anybody can do it. If you have maple, if you have sugar maples or red, you can do it with red and silver maples. The syrup's not as good, but you can do it. Yeah. I live in, I live in Minnesota and one of my neighbors recently has a neighbor. He has a neighbor with a tree and they, he did the boiling down and I'm not sure if his process was different than what you're talking about, but you know, it was, gave us, gave us a jar of this maple syrup. That's like from the, his neighborhood. Yeah. If you have a, a drill and a, a drill bit and a tree and can boil, boil it, you can make syrup and you can make it all the way down to sugar. That's one of the things that we did with the kids. And it is, it was so exciting to see. So we're like, these kids are sitting here with these spoons and they're stirring and stirring and stirring. And then all of a sudden they're like, why is it changing color? Oh, wait, what? And then it's like, you're stirring, stirring for like, like five minutes. And all of a sudden in like 
15 seconds, it goes from syrup to sugar. And that's just, they're like, whoa, it's, it's, it's so cool to see. And the kids thought it was so cool to see as well. And uh, that's kind of how we started the units off. We started off with maple syrup and maple sugar. And so for those videos, um, I went to a tribal member's sugar bush in northern lower Michigan. So the northern part of the lower peninsula. We went out into the woods with a 360 camera. I just followed him. I just walked, like, we walked out into the woods, we tapped the first tree, he talked through the process, and he taught me how to harvest maple syrup. And while he taught me, I held on to the Insta360 camera. This will be the maple trap, tap. You can see it's pretty good size. But we never tap the first maple we come to. We'll go ask permission, ask for blessing. I should note that if you have a VR headset on while you're watching these videos, you can turn your head in any direction to get a sense of the full surroundings. The white snow extending on the ground and trees all around. Even without a headset, if you open the YouTube videos on your laptop, you can click on the video and change the angle as you watch. Yeah, you could, we've tapped this one a couple years. See another spot that we tapped it. Um, the big thing is we'll tap it, put a hose on it. So. After we picked these topics and we started creating videos, then we needed to find communities to also work with to test it and to see and give feedback. Um, and that was kind of the next step. And so uh, for the research side of things, um, I worked with a local uh, after-school inter-tribal youth group um, and brought the curriculum that we created and VR headsets and it's not just VR, it's, it, there's, there's other activities included. And we brought all of that in and then we, we kind of, we, we tested it out. And what was the result? Like how was, how did the, you know, the children react to, to, to having this VR experience? That's actually, it's really interesting. Um, and, and I wanna say like, I, I did a second run through with a local public school uh, of third graders. And, and in that space, uh, zero children identified as, as native. They were all had other identities. Um, here in Michigan, pretty much every school district has people who identify as native in one way or another. Um, but they're often American Indian and it's American Indian on census, uh, data. Uh, and the experience in both places was very similar where when we put these on, and these, the, they put the, the headsets on. The typical reaction was them going, whoa. And you would think because they're in this space and they can't see their peers or because it's video that they would just sit there and watch. Like if you show them the video on the screen, they'll sit and they'll watch. That's not what happened at all. They started talking to each other. They started calling out the things they were seeing. They were talking about uh, how <clears throat> exciting and interesting things were. Um, and they were gesturing and reaching and trying to move. And so as I watch and, 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 and we kind of look through it, there's a lot going on. There's interactions uh, with the just simply with the equipment where they're using the controller and the headset and they're looking in all all 360 directions 
So even though there's a speaker, they don't focus on the speaker. They focus on, they focus teaching. around. Yeah. It's everything. Yeah. And so they're taking in that whole space as they're building in that meaning and they're actually in that environment. And, and then they're talking with their peers about what they're seeing and engaging that way and then using embodied cognition as part of it where they're reaching out and they're trying to actually interact with that space. It's, it's, it, was, it was amazing to see. It was not at all what I expected. Although it does, I mean, it seems like it goes to the the hope of bringing the experience of the land in some way. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, and, and I want to say, like, one of the things that I did after kind of developing the curriculum is we, I did take it to a tribal reservation community. And, um, uh, and I shared it with a number of people. And I, in addition to the maple syrup, we did, when we did wild rice, we did a couple of things. One is we went ricing with people just like we did. So I didn't get to go on the canoe with that one. I, that was attached to the tripod was like a attached to the canoe. So it's actually really cool too. That's my favorite video. Cause you're out in the river or out on the lake and these traditional harvesters are harvesting and you're just floating in the air above it. Like right, right I mean, there. We're towards the end of the season of wild racing. So, I mean, uh, if you guys probably would have came next week like they plan probably wouldn't have harvested much at all the members of the tribal community who were filmed in the video explain the process as they go while viewers can look in any direction on the river um, right now i'm push pulling chad chad's our picker i'm the push puller um, and we're looking for the rice right now it still may not fully capture how difficult it is, though, to push these canoes through these thick reeds. But it may be the next best thing. I shared a lot of this and talked a lot of it with, with those people, those elders and those knowledge holders, and then asked for their feedback. And, and they gave me feedback and we made modifications. And then I brought the curriculum to a tribal community to work with uh, to see, get their feedback. And... Um, one of the people who, who was giving me feedback, uh, before he started, he said, I would only be in favor of this if it was really buggy and it didn't work. And it made him throw down the headset and go outside and go ricing. And this person, traditional ricer, very knowledgeable about their tribal culture. And I was like, oh boy. So You got a tough audience. Yeah. So... Then he puts it on and he starts watching the videos and he starts trying out some of the activities that go with it. And he's like, it's not at all what I expected because it wasn't like a game with like jet computer generated sticks. It was, it was real. It was authentic. It represented what the practices actually looked like and the culture actually looked like. And on top of it for him, the people in the video including himself, he was in one of the videos. He didn't realize it because he was at a rice camp where we were filming. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, that's me. And, oh, there's my friend's truck. And he's like, oh, yeah. Oh, now I remember we met. <laughs> and he's saying all this while he's wearing the headset. And, uh, but, but they said, you know, like it, it was really important to them, to tribal communities. It's really important to all of us that our culture is represented authentically. So it's more than just 
going out and shooting videos and sharing them with kids. It, it needs to be real. Um, because so much of our culture has been represented inauthentically. We get really defensive. And, and I think that was another one of the really important parts. So like when students are in the canoe and there's another trip where they're in a canoe and I'm in the canoe and there's another person and we're canoeing down the river and we're looking at river rice. Um, and again, they're actually there and they're seeing it. And when we go out and did the practices or when we visited rice camp, you can't, it, well, you could, it, it's just very difficult to bring rice camp to, to here, to, to these kids. Again, right, same idea. But so how did we like simulate the activities, right? And the same with like maple syrup. Uh, yeah, we could go out and drill in maple trees here in Southeast Michigan, but we were testing this in the fall, not the time to be tapping maple trees. So how do we, it, it was more to me than just the videos. People needed to do something, right? They needed to ha engage in the practices. So we taught them how to make tools, hand tools. So some of the videos are, are a tribal elder teaching people how to make hand tools. And then we brought in the resources of cedar and saw benches and all that for the kids to work on the hand tools. We simulated maple syrup tapping by bringing in a trunk. I brought in a tree trunk and a drill and we practiced drilling and, and tapping trees. Um, and for rice camp, we did the same thing. We, we simulated the acts of processing wild rice with different hands-on activities using things that you could find anywhere or, or most places. Like, um, one of the activities in, in wild rice processing is winnowing. So you have to remove the husk of the grain and to do that, they would, they would jig it. They would dance on it and kind of wiggle your feet. And um, I didn't do it because when I do it, it comes out flour. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but then you put it in these baskets and you, you kind of drop the basket and the grain falls and the heavy grain falls and the lighter chaff will stay in the air and then the wind blows it away, right? Real, real bait, it's, it's like amazing how many cultures do the same practice, right? But so how do we bring that into the classroom? Because I, I didn't have access to green seed for them to process. And typically a person wouldn't. So we use birdseed and confetti. Birdseed drops, the confetti stays in the air. And uh, the teachers, they, I was talking with one the other day, he's like, I still find confetti. The little glitter little glitter all over the place. But the kids were able to do that. The youth were able to do that. And, and in that tribal environment, they were able to do that as well. And they were like, you know, it's not the same, but it is really close. And I said, you're right. And I said, the thing that I think when kids go through this, that I would say is the thing I want students to come out of it with is exactly what that guy said. I want them to go outside and tap a maple tree or harvest wild rice. And maybe even look for, look for that, see nature in that way. Yeah, and it's, it's been really interesting as well because like the school I worked with, the public school I worked with, um, the teacher asked them what they knew about American 
Indian people and their experiences. And and it was a third grade classroom. And third grade is the, one of the years in Michigan where uh, many of our social studies standards connect to 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 the uh, indigenous communities. And uh, you know they didn't know anything, which is okay. They're third graders and. You know, I, I think if you started asking most people in in this in the state about the Anishinaabe, many of them would have no clue what you're talking about, unfortunately. So for them, it was like not only just being excited about going outside, but at the same time as they were learning about wild rice, Manuman was made the state grain in Michigan and was in the news. And then they're looking at the newspaper and there's a picture of the guy who's been teaching them in the videos and they're like, they're, you know, they're making all these additional connections to social studies and current events and um, climate change. And they're talking about like, how can we help wild rice? How can we help maple syrup? How can we make sure these things keep going now too? And, and it's not their tribal culture because they're not tribal members, but they see the value and they see the importance in it. And, I think another thing that is really significant to me about that was we centered indigenous ways of knowing. We centered tribal knowledge and tribal elders. And we taught in ways that, that are traditionally used in tribal communities and not necessarily used in, in, in all communities. And the students had a lot of success and they felt really excited and I'm really excited, too. There's a case study that I'm working on for one young man in the class. And he, um, he's neurodivergent. And um, one of the, uh, he, he struggles academically. Um, and he struggles socially with his, his peer-to-peer interactions. And watching him in this space and going through these videos where he's able to have like this almost like direct connection with his teacher. And he just, he just thrived afterwards. He was sharing in circle when I, in the first lesson I watched him when the class sat in a circle, he sat outside the circle. Right. And and you think about like where we put ourselves in the classroom and what does it say about how we feel in that space? Right. If you're not in the circle, right, you're outside the circle and you're sitting back Right. You don't feel so selected, opted yeah. Yeah, not to be not to be confident enough to be part of the group. But a couple of lessons later, not even that many. Uh, I want to say it was like three or four. And he's sitting not only is he sitting in the circle, but he's sharing analogies about the stories that are heard. And he's retelling the stories in a way that makes sense to him. Yeah. And I was just the teacher and I were like. We're just floored. I'm really, you know, I'm, I really appreciate the, you know, telling the, how this was is played out in these settings because it's, it's. I'm so curious about it. it. It does feel, and I, I can, I can hear that, you know, tribal member you mentioned who was a little bit wary of the of the gadget. I, I do think there's possibly something to if they heard this idea just flat with it cold. If they heard this idea cold, they might think, well, that seems ironic to have. A VR headset, a very high tech, modern, non you know, like something that is taking you out of um, the land and and the space you're in physically, 
to have that be able to, you know, somehow better teach some of these, um, you know, tribal ways of, of thinking and, 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 um, and relation to the land. I, I guess some people might be surprised by that. I don't think it's ironic that, that technology helps us to learn in this space. Um, Native people have utilized technology in a lot of different ways for a long time. And we're not stuck in one era or one past. And that was one of the things that I, I did talk about with some tribal members. And some tribal members, they were very adamant that they did not think that this was appropriate. Um, many more uh, were in favor of the ones I spoke to. And I'm sure there are plenty out there. And just like any other population, right, we don't all agree on, on everything. Um, but, but that one of the activities in the, in the curriculum asks students to consider, can we use technology and still hold on to our traditions? And the, topic of so that's the question and they learn about this thing that this this guy roger invented i think roger invented it it's called a he calls it a manuminator and what it does is it does the uh uh jigging and the winnowing so you dry the rice over a fire traditionally like we would anyways and then when you're done instead of putting it in a pit for someone to dance on and then have someone shake, which takes hours. You dump it in this machine and you turn it on and it's got these paddles and a fan and it blows the chaff out of the stack at the top. And then when you're done, you've got all of this rice. It dances and, and, uh, and, and blows off the, the chaff. That's interesting. Yeah. And so it's like, how do we, because that's, that's the thing that we have to navigate. And it was one of the things that came up in the focus groups too, way back in the beginning was that as Native people, we have to navigate a space where we have our own culture, there's a dominant culture that pushes back against us in many ways, and to be honest, there's a future in front of us with a lot of challenges. And that's a big part of this curriculum for me personally as well. So like I mentioned, the seven fires prophecy, so there's the eighth fire and the eighth fire is a time. And, um, Robin Kimmerer speaks about it in her book. Uh, I read about it in, uh, the Mishomis book, which is by Edward Benton Benai. Um, and that goes through all of the prophecies. It has a lot. If people are interested in knowing more about, about this, um, and then Brayton Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer is, is also very helpful. Um, both of them talk about this eighth fire and it's a time of challenge when we have to come together. And, and Robin Kimmerer puts out the idea that it's, it's climate change. And for a long time in the sciences, one voice has, has dominated. One perspective has dominated science. And, and it's this idea of Western science. And then there's traditional ecological knowledge or, other different labels for it. But, and I, I um, picked up the term indigenous ways of knowing that comes from uh, Megan, Megan Bang and Douglas Medine, uh, I think. Uh, at least that's where I read it first. It was in their book, uh, Who's Asking? Um, and they, 
you know, this, this idea that the eighth fire says that it's going to require people of all world worlds, like within the world to come together to solve these problems. And so that means like those indigenous perspectives, um, they need to be heard. And it's not just native perspective, native American or indigenous American perspectives. It's indigenous Africans, indigenous Australians and, you know, Maori and everybody. We all are going to have to solve this problem and do something about it. And there's going to be other problems. And when we work together as a community, when we bring in all alternative voices, we, we're more effective and we do, we do good. Um, and so I think that's something that is really important here. Uh, like how do we help people learn that perspective? And yeah, right. It is, it takes some, some technology and it's a little bit different and yeah. I'm, I'm really curious. So what are the, you know, your own project is fascinating and I'm glad to share it with people, but I'm curious where you think the potential beyond this, these examples that you've you know, experimented with to larger, um, you know, the, the larger Native American community in the United States in particular, but other, you mentioned, you mentioned other indigenous peoples around the world. Yeah. Um, technology and using technology in indigenous contexts is really understudied in the United States specifically and Canada. Um, there are examples of similar work, but pilot projects that I was able to come across, but in other contexts, and they weren't really followed through um, with connecting people and culture. And I think, for me, one of the potentials I see in the future is, um, is streaming, which would require a lot more resources than I have access to. because Streaming the- VR? streaming VR. I hope someday that that would be the kind of thing that we could do. And, um, I've played around a little bit with my phone and the camera. Yeah. And it's, it's very, at least for me, it's been very slow. I see. But what would you, what kind of application would you do if you had it working? If you had, if the technology wasn't a barrier right now? Right. You know, if you can stream VR, then you can set up a camera around a sacred fire and you can have a tribal elder teaching and talking to you on the land. And then you could be at your space with your peers and have a sacred fire also burning and put your headset on and connect to that person. Because like one of the things, the questions that I got from a lot of native people was I miss the smell. And so like, it's a small thing, but then you would be there in that space and you could talk and ask them questions and we did something. I mean, we had elders connect with the youth through Zoom, but it, it's not quite the same. And so I think something like that would be really amazing. Um, I'd love to see the development of some simulations around some of the tasks that we did that are a little more in the VR space. Um, you know, wild ricing, going out and harvesting wild rice, there's, there's two tasks in the canoe. Uh, one is a person who uses a pole to move through the water because the rice is too thick. You can't, you can't paddle. You have to use a pole in, like, like a gondola type of situation. Um, and then the other person uses the sticks to kind of harvest it by hand and they have to bend it and then tap it. And if you hit it too hard, you can damage the plant. 
And if you damage the plant, you might get all of the seed head, but not all the seed head is ripe. And thinking about perspectives, we, we are told that we are to take a third. A third is for us, a third is for the animals, and a third is for next year. So we don't want to harvest all of it. And you don't want to knock all the seed heads off. But if you don't know what you're doing, and you're out there whacking away, hitting too hard, you can damage the plant. So how can we teach people how to rice in a respectful way? And so I think maybe VR could be an opportunity to even do that. And we can make a, you know, some games out of it. Um, and I think increasing and, and again, adding subjects and, and, their, and working with additional communities. Um, like one of the studies that I read that was a pilot, they were using a camera at a kiosk in Mexico and they had a kiosk in, uh, I want to say, outside of Phoenix. And you could record videos and ask questions and each end. And so it was this idea. And it was like a real rural village in Mexico. And, and they did it and they were like, people engaged and we, they were interested. But that's kind of the end of the study because they didn't get a grant, you know, or whatever. And I think about those opportunities and there's so much more that we can be doing. And, like, really connect people with, like, authentic experiences. Because when you're just looking like you and I are in this box, I mean, you can see, thank God, you can't see the full space around me because you would see the piles and piles of papers. But <laughs> Same here. Yeah, that gives you context background. on all of the crazy and why, like, you know, I jump all over the place. But, um, you know, those, like, that's a real conversation. And, and there's more to learning than just that little box. All that other stuff really does matter. And it sounds like it's also important to, especially if you're talking about a different, you know, different culture, a different way of thinking, to share more than just speaking, for instance, more than just some yeah. elder saying something, but to be able to immerse someone in, um, in the space and watching the actions. Yeah, like, like you could watch um, people playing a drum it's very different when it's in your front yard, uh, which happened. Like I, I got to have that experience where there was a, a local group and we were, we were doing this thing and they were playing the drum right in my front yard. And it was amazing. And you can feel the drum in your heart. Um, and you see, and you look around and you see people dancing around you. You see people watching, you see people talking, you know, not everybody's doing the same thing. And there's so much more going on. Like one of my favorite videos that we created is me, walk, well, they're all me, uh, but me walking through rice camp, just walking through. And you can see all of these different activities. And one of the reasons I love it is if, you were, if you're paying attention, you'll see at some point this little boy with like a bow and arrow. And it's my kid. He was off with an elder in a different spot. And that elder was teaching him how to make bows and arrows. And he didn't talk to me about that. But it's okay. But, you know, that's something that was happening at rice camp off to the side. It wasn't even a focus. And you see all of these different activities and all these different people. And they're, they're not just natives. There's all of this whole community coming together. And when it's a little box on a screen, you don't get that full feeling around you of a whole community around you. And you don't get that full feeling of support either. Like communities... 
they, they, they support. And, and that's how we processed the rice. That's how we did maple syrup. It's a hard job. Both of them are hard jobs. It took a lot of time. And it took everybody coming together. Everybody had a role. And you can see that. Like, there's a group that we didn't do this activity because it's a terrible, it, it's so boring. But after the rice is processed, somebody has to still go through and t- pick out the pieces that get missed. Well, that was the job of the, the oldest elders, the ones who couldn't do the others, who had to sit and rest. And so they're over there. You can see them doing it, you know, and, and they're picking through and they're talking and there's someone beating and there's someone working on another craft. And there's all these different activities. And so there's so much more going on that you don't even see if you can only see that narrow view. No, it's so, so interesting. Yeah, is there? Um, I've taken up a lot of your time. Is there anything else you wanted to highlight? Um, there's so much more we could do, but as far as the the points we've touched on, or something you want to leave folks with, I think, I think for me personally, one of the things that really came out through all of this was the idea of authenticity and how important that is, and how important it is to represent people as they are and communities as they really are. No matter what technology is being used to to do the delivery. And and, uh, when you can really show how a community comes together to accomplish something, it's really powerful. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week we're here with a new episode And we've been doing this for nearly a decade now. In fact, today marks our 500th episode. Yep, we have put out 500 of these. I'll admit many of those were made before my time here at Ed Surge, but I'm honored to keep this tradition alive. And thank you for keeping us going by listening. If you don't already, please follow the Ed Surge podcast wherever you listen. And you can give us a podcast birthday present by leaving a rating or a review on your favorite app. This episode was reported and put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on X at JR Young or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing this episode by Rebecca Koenig and music by Komaku. And as a reminder, next week, I'll be in Austin uh, doing a live taping of the Ed Search podcast at the South by Southwest EDU Festival. If you'll be at that event, we hope you'll join us in person. Come say hi afterwards. I'd love to talk to you. Just search that conference program. You can find out when we're on. And we'll be back here on the feed next week with a new episode, Keeping the Streak Going. Thanks so much for listening.